got the truth Is it you, is it you, is it you Who got the truth now Is it you, is it you, is it you Sit me down, say it straight Another story on the way Who got the truth Welcome back to episode 9 of Acquired the show where we talk about technology acquisitions that actually went well. I'm Ben Gilbert. I'm David Rosenthal. And we are your hosts. This week, we're going to be covering an older acquisition, but following a theme from our last episode in productivity software. We're going to be covering the what became the eventual suite known as Google Drive, Google Docs, Google Sheets, and is it Google Presentations? Google Slides. Slide. I think it started as presentations. Yeah, and then it was presentations, spreadsheets, and docs. The, the product of many names. Yes. And we'll go through. There were, there were a whole ton of companies um, that uh, actually contributed to this. David will go through the acquisition history and facts, but largely focused around Rightly, which event- eventually became Google Docs. Yes. Um, a reminder that uh, if you enjoy the show, uh, leave us a review on iTunes. We uh, would love any feedback. Or you can hit us up on Twitter, or at can- AcquiredFM. All right. Well, David, this is the perfect time to talk about one of our favorite companies, Statsig. Yes. When we had VJ on ACQ2 earlier this year, they were already a pretty impressive kind of Series B stage startup with a killer team and early product market fit. But what's happened since and the scale that they're operating at now is pretty wild. This is where we get lucky in being very choosy with our sponsors. Sometimes these things happen to them while we're mid-flight. Yes. So I asked them for some fun stats. In the past month, Statsig shipped actual live product experiments to over 1.2 billion end users. Now, that stat is not deduplicated across apps, so there's some overlap. But I mean, even if you cut that in half to approximate actual flesh and blood human people out there, that's almost 10% of the world's population. Crazy. Okay, so that's one. Two. Statsig now processes about 130 billion events per day. So the infrastructure that Statsig now has to support these data volumes is pretty wild. And it's not like they just execute these events. They then take all the data from them, run huge statistical jobs across the whole corpus to compute the experiment results that their customers are running. It is just wild. It's funny. I hadn't thought to make this comparison until right now. So you said 1.7 million events a second. If you look at the Visa numbers, I just pulled up my Visa notes. Visa does 8,600 transactions per second. So that's what, 200 times as much throughput at Statsig than at Visa? On the customer side, Statsig added arguably almost all of the most important AI companies in the world this year, including Microsoft, Atlassian, Anthropic, along, of course, with regular old companies like Notion and UiPath and Lattice and Brex and Friends of the Show Rec Room. The team also kept shipping super fast. At the start of the year, they had just one core product. Today, they're a full-fledged product understanding platform. They have dedicated feature flagging, warehouse native experimentation, and product analytics. Yep. So if your team wants the best platform in the world for making data-driven product decisions, you should reach out. Statsig.com slash acquired. And as always, there is special white glove onboarding for all acquired listeners. Our huge thanks to Statsig. Now let's uh, dive into the show. David, you want to do acquisition history and facts? As always, Ben. So... 
dear listeners, let's transport back in time to the mid-2000s. Web 2.0 era is in full swing. Ajax, the browser technology <laughs> that enabled um, that enabled uh, live dynamic updating of websites, had just come out, and a group of uh, uh, a group of technologists from Intuit had decided to start a little crew to dabble in what they could do with Ajax, and so they founded a company that they called uh, Upstartle. I love that name. So bubble. So, <laughs> so web 2.0. Um, and, uh, they ran through a couple projects and, uh, landed on a product that they called Rightly. And it was collaborative document editing in the cloud. I don't know what they called it that at the time. Yeah. Which now seems so table stakes. Absolutely. Um, Founded by Sam Shalas, Claudia Carpenter, and Steve Newman. Uh, and they worked on it for a couple of years. It was in beta. Uh, they had a few thousand users. Uh, and then in March 2006, Google announces that they had acquired the company for an undisclosed amount rumored in the $10 million range. Uh, what's interesting, they'd only hired one person over those two years. So it was the three founders uh, and one other Intuit employee, former Intuit employee, Jennifer Mazon. Um, and they all joined Google and became PMs in Google Docs. And what's interesting is that um, this was actually the second acquisition that Google had made in their online office productivity suite. Uh, the first was another company, a smaller company in New York called Two Web, uh, Two Web Technologies that they'd actually acquired in 2005 that was working on Excel Two Web. Well, that was something that they brought into Google Labs, right? And I think Google Labs created the first Google spreadsheets before Google Docs, Google Docs even launched. Yes. And it's, this was all happening right around the same time. So, uh, Google Spreadsheet launched in Labs in June 2006. Rightly was acquired in March 2006. Um, and then shortly thereafter, uh, in the beginning of 2007, Google Docs, uh, based on Rightly, was released publicly. Yeah, I think it was do Docs and Spreadsheets were actually merged right around that time. And you could go to docs.google.com and the, the, I remember the header actually said Google Docs and Spreadsheets, one big long thing. Yeah. And it looked like they just kind of like took the spreadsheets view and just inter interjected the, some of your docs in there and you could sort by date. But that was pretty much all the integration they had. Yep. And then uh, shortly after that launched, uh, two more company companies that Google acquired in 2007, Tonic Systems and Zenter, which is an early Y Combinator company, both of which were working on presentation software for the browser. That's right. Tonic largely the back end and Zenter largely the front end. And um, it's pretty amazing how quickly Google turned these acquisitions around. Uh, September 2007, Presentations was launched. And finally, there is now a full suite of Microsoft Office-esque productivity software in the cloud. That's right. But don't ask Eric Schmidt that. When they announced Google Docs and Spreadsheets, he definitely told a uh, gigantic audience full of people that they were not indeed competing with Microsoft and it was not a competitor to Office. I wonder if uh, our last episode's guest, Kurt Delbeni, was listening at the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh and uh and then uh some might say, you know, the rest is history. However, interesting side note of history. 2007, the same year these final acquisitions happened and the full suite was released uh by Google. 
June of 2007, Dropbox is founded. Yeah. And that's interesting. I mean, you look at the bet that Google's making here. I mean, this happens so fast. This, this all happens within a year and a half span. And all of a sudden they have a full kind of suite here. And they, they definitely went through and, and, uh, made very strategic acquisitions here, but built a lot of it in house. I think what they acquired was super bare bones in each of these, applica- at the, each of these applications, all pretty inexpensive. I mean, this, these are all rumored approximate $10 million acquisitions. You know, last episode we we were talking with Kurt Delbeni and we were looking at what Microsoft paid for Accompli and Wonderlist and Sunrise. That you know totals somewhere around half a billion dollars. And when Google was getting into to dabble in this game, which is the you know really inventing the market for cloud productivity, um, super cheap because that wasn't you know people weren't flocking there yet. People didn't realize that oh I need collaboration tools in real time where I can look at the other person's cursor in my document. It was it was largely a toy at that point. Yep, and um, I, mean, I think these are all really interesting examples of the buy versus build uh, that we were talking about with Kurt yes. a little bit last week. Um, and uh, what's interesting, and one of the reasons I brought up Dropbox being founded around then, you know, all these companies, these five or so companies that Google acquired that became the backbone of of Google Docs, um, there were all these rumors. I don't know if you remember Ben around the time for years about the mythical Google G drive. drive. Yeah, that's the right. G drive. It was coming. It was coming. Didn't and launch. It was, it was the Dropbox killer. It was the Dropbox killer and it didn't launch until 2012. And, um, you know, and, and one could imagine, you know, we mentioned Zenter was, was an early Y Combinator company as was Dropbox. You know, how might history have been different if Google had decided that they would accelerate their drive efforts by acquiring <laughs> Dropbox or Box at the same time? Yeah, it'd be interesting. Hmm. Very interesting. All right, with that, should we move on to acquisition category? Yeah, let's do it. Because I think there's there's a lot of... This episode, I'm most interested in the fast-forwarding to today and looking at, you know, how does this impact Google's business as a whole? So I think, um, yeah, let's uh, happy to just blow right through acquisition history and facts now onto acquisition category. To me, um, technology. I think all these acquisitions, you know, primarily, um, rightly, were these kind of experimental Ajax apps. And everybody was seeing what they could do with Ajax at the time. Google Maps, I remember, was a very flashy demo example of that. And, you know, I think there were a few different people later on, Etherpad, but a few different companies playing around with collaborative editing. And I think content editable was the the new hottest thing in, in browser technology that, that they took advantage of. And, you know, this is, this is just acquiring, um, sort of that, the, the people that were doing that right. And so I think, you know, technology and, a, a people acquisition, knowing that there was a lot of, the, of, uh, technology to, to build in house to really turn it into a, a product that was marketable. Yep. Um, it's interesting, you know, I, I was going to go with business line for this category, mm. but this is such a, you know, we when we started doing this, talked about doing this episode, we said it was going to be on rightly. But as we were doing research, we realized, you know, there are these really five or so companies. And all these, and none of them too, too, none of them too much further along than any of the other ones. Exactly. Um, and and I think this really, you know, to me, crystallized this being a classic. You know, Google decided they wanted to get into the business of productivity apps, and they wanted to take a, a typically Google bent on it and put them in the browser instead of being installed software on your PC. Um, and they decided to, to get into this business and, and made the judgment that buying was going to be a faster 
a faster way to get there than building in-house. Yeah, it sure does feel like a case study in the buy versus build. I mean, I think that um, dropping, let's say, $50 million shortcutted their time to market dramatically and put all that right brain, ho- brain power in-house right away. Yep. And what's interesting is it's also, um, you know, I, I think in a, blending a little bit kind of the tech themes here, but um, and I, I don't know what Google thought at the time in terms of their strategy, but as the the battleground for productivity software has really evolved from, you know, at that time it was Word and Excel and PowerPoint installed on your computer to now it's this whole suite of, you know, not just those applications, but also your email, also uh, your your cloud services as a as an organization. I mean, what do your not only the third party software you're running, which is your email, which is your word processing, which is your spreadsheets, but also your internal company apps that you're running on, whether that's AWS or Google Cloud Engine or Microsoft Azure, as that's um, really evolved in the last few years. Um, it's 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 almost been this mix within Google that they bought the traditional productivity software, but the email uh, piece with Gmail and the cloud piece, which we can argue, you know, about how much success they've had there relative to Amazon, they built in-house. Interesting. Yeah. So there's the question now of you know, before we get into what would have happened otherwise, David, do you think that Google should have gotten into productivity at all? Like, let, let's let let's zoom out, look at Google as a business. It's an advertising business primarily driven by um, AdWords and, and you search and people click and Google gets a cut. And, you know, that has always been their cash cow and for the foreseeable future looks to be the largest source of their revenue. Working backwards from that, you either have to believe that that is at some point not going to become their largest stream of revenue or that that's going to rely on some data or some asset provided by, it could be customers, by the um, productivity applications. It Does it make sense for them to be in the productivity game at all? Yeah, it's a good question. My sense is that um, Google for a long time has been looking for that what's next yeah i mean in fact their their uh revenues now are reported since they're alphabet now um we should be saying alphabet uh alphabet's revenues now are reported as google and other bets like they're so fascinated with this what's the next you know widget that they've restructured their entire company their reporting scheme and their leadership structure around it it's um it's interesting and um you know, Microsoft had this challenge too for a long time. I mean, they were the Windows company, the operating system company for a long time. Yeah. And um, I think perhaps longer uh, than a lot of people would have expected, that has continued to be an incredible cash cow for them. But now we're in the throes, as we talked with Kurt last week, about, you know, what is Microsoft today? It's, you know, a mobile first, cloud first company. It's not an operating system and office company. And for Google, you know, they're the search company. They've been the search company now for nearly 20 years. Uh, and when did... Wow, I feel old. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite 20 years, but 18 years. Google is going to college, you know. Google's graduating <laughs> from high school this year and they're going to college. Um, if we had a coin name for naming episodes, that's what we'd name this one. <laughs> and um, 
and and I think this is a big part of the question of of what does Google want to be when it grows up, mm-hmm. and uh, and and actually I think a, a relevant other acquisition uh, flashing forward to today, uh, you know, Google recently acquired a company called Bebop, which was founded by Diane Green, who was the founder of VMware, um, and Diane was on Google's board, um, and and Bebop was. Nominal, they hadn't released their product. It was still in stealth, uh, but nominally making um, productivity software for the enterprise. Mm. Um, now, I don't think it was Word and Excel type productivity software, but it was software um, to helping about helping enterprises build their applications. Uh, and and Diane is now taking over the entire cloud business for Google, yeah. which includes all of Google Apps and Google for Work. Yeah, it's interesting. Well, two two directions I want to go with this. The the first one is okay. Maybe they clearly they've been obsessed with big bets the whole time. I mean, Google itself, the the core project backrub, the whole academic research project into organizing the world's information and releasing the the, the best search engine and the one that's the most sustainable on an ongoing basis. Um, you know, that was an enormous bet, and I think that. Now they're thinking totally crazy with these moonshot ideas. When they started with Google Docs in ninety, or I'm sorry, in uh, 2006, like they weren't doing self-driving cars and they weren't doing balloons that deliver internet and they weren't doing a lot of these 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 huge projects. So maybe this felt like a possible big bet to them for the future of their company. Looking at Microsoft and seeing that productivity of that era was such a cash cow and is just now sort of dwarfed by how big they're thinking with all their their current big bets. And this was sort of like an early on possible big big bet that we're seeing that's sort of legacy. Like I'm not sure Google would go into this space starting today. Yep, yep. I agree. Um but it's interesting to go back to that time and I wonder if Google um have to I mean sitting here today in 2016 uh, Microsoft, uh, as much as they've had a resurgence in the last couple of years, uh, they're not as relevant in terms of the, the, you know, most important strategic players in, t- you know, landscape and technology. But it, going back to the mid 2000s with Google looking at Microsoft, and I wonder if they saw the Windows office, you know, two legs of the, you know, the stool, uh, the, the non-balancing stool and, and thought, gosh, those two core businesses in an operating system and productivity. And they thought about themselves and said, you know, if we want to be like Microsoft, our analogy search for operating systems is search. You know, we're the operating system of the web. What is the productivity on the web? And, and when you think about when they started Google Docs, um, that was what it was and, and still is to a large extent to this day. Yeah, it makes total sense in that context. And I think that, um, you know, if we're looking at this like three to five years ago rather than looking at it today, I'd be sitting here preaching or, or I guess singing the the praises of Google as this is one of the most classic examples ever of low-end disruption. I mean, you have the the big thing that the enterprise people are buying with you know, these companies that need every single last feature of office even though any given person only uses five percent of it and most of them use the same five percent but you need all those features because that's how you you get the big enterprise contract as you know well did you stuff all 100 percent of those features <laughs> into office for ipad no it's fun we got to rethink uh rethink the 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 lightweight productivity we called it 
um, which is super fun. But the um, the you know in in low end disruption, you get this new income, this new person that comes along, Google in this case, with Google Docs. Everything's a total toy. It doesn't have any of the features that the enterprise need. They're giving it away for free. But yep. like at the end of the day, there's so many people that look at that real time collaboration available on the web, cloud storage as like, wait, this is way more important to me than all those old things that colloquially everyone believed were necessary. And yep. I think the difference of where we're sitting today from a few years ago is I don't think it fulfilled its low end disruption promise of unseating the incumbent. I mean, I, I was all braced and ready for, for Office to become less relevant and Google Docs to be the, the future and them to slowly add on the rich feature set that people would call the new incumbent. Yeah. But, well, and and so, so let, me, let me ask you, I'm curious. You, you guys started Pioneer Square Labs in 2015. Uh-huh. Do you have on either your computers or via Office 365, Word, Excel, and PowerPoint? We do because of BizSpark. Um, BizSpark is the um, Microsoft program that that makes a lot of their software available available for free to startups. Startups, interesting. uh, If you didn't have that, would you pay for those? Would you use just Google Docs? At least a couple of us would, just because um, any of our legal documents are going to be changed in Word, and that needs to be um, have perfect rendering. Um, there, There are definitely still industries that require. Um, high fidelity, per- perfect rendering of documents. Yep. Um, but you know, like I, anything that I open that is, when I'm writing like a quick feature spec or like a one pager on an idea or uh, a welcome document that we're going to send out to new users of our application or anything like that, it's all Google Docs. So I, I mean, really, I'd say like anything that I start from scratch these days is Google Docs. It's Google Docs. Um, the other direction that I wanted to go with that is. When we were talking with Kurt last week, and something that's become completely obvious with with Amazon's earnings breaking out AWS, that um, you know Azure is very much the future for Microsoft. AWS is already as profitable as an independent business as their entire e-commerce business is in a much shorter time period. For Amazon. For yeah, Amazon. Microsoft. Sorry. Microsoft yeah. wishes it were well, part of Microsoft. Well, yeah. So Microsoft with Azure, Amazon with AWS. Yep. A lot of interesting news in the last couple of weeks with Google and, and Google Cloud Platform. I think there, were, there was some news that Apple was moving there. It's actually been a tremendous amount of news in the last couple of weeks. Apple yep. developing their own um, internal cloud uh, or, or their own cloud hardware. Apple developing their own uh, hardware to put in their own data centers and run their own cloud infrastructure. Yep. Um, Dropbox also, doing the same thing. Yep. But I guess the where I'm going with this is, in these cloud services, you kind of have these three layers, infrastructure as a service, platform as a service, and then software as a service. Each of these three players, uh, uh, Microsoft, Amazon, and Google, have all the layers of the stack. They started in different places, Amazon yeah. kind of with infrastructure, Microsoft with all the way up with, with software, and Google with originally uh, Google App Engine with platform as a service. Yep. Do you think that as all of these businesses are betting on that being the cash cow of the future, do all of them need all of the layers or would mm. Google be fine without productivity software yeah. and the software as a service? It's layer? interesting. Um, this gets a little bit into um, maybe I'll just jump into it. Uh, you know, my sort of tech theme um, as we've been 
describing, you know, all of Google's strategic decisions around this business probably made perfect sense to them when they made them in the mid 2000s and even up until a few years ago. But the landscape has changed and the battleground has changed mm-hmm. for what productivity is. And that's why I brought up mm-hmm. you know, why you brought this up now and why I was mentioning earlier the sort of cloud and the infrastructure layer. Um, and I think, Ben, the answer to your question is no. And I think one need look no farther than AWS to see that. I mean, AWS started as infrastructure. That's what they do. And of course, they've moved up the stack and added other things, but that's, they aren't offering email. I think there is some Amazon email, but like nobody it's uses not a it. Not serious, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and yet they're still, at least in, you know, inning number, maybe we're in inning number two of the cloud now. Hmm. Uh, they're, they're pretty far and away, you know, the leader. Um, and it would be, it's interesting to think about like, what could Google have done rather than, copying the microsoft strategy in the mid 2000s of okay we've got the quote-unquote operating system now we're going to do productivity what if they had instead um fought amazon more directly at that point on the infrastructure layer or gone with another another aspect entirely well yeah it's interesting i think with google google app engine you were locking yourself into like google's proprietary data storage and you had to use python it was like they're when you were looking at the cloud services in inning number one or the top half, the it, the choices, it like wasn't apples to apples at all because you're like, well, I'm going to either build for a Google App Engine or I'm not. I don't really get choices around that. Um, or Amazon, it looks like, gives me just one level of abstraction above running my own server, which I think is what I want. Yeah. And like, it was interesting how those two companies made enormously different bets there and Amazon And you out. look at the, like, the diversity of of companies and enterprises and workloads that have that have adopted Amazon over the past few years and you know you mentioned Dropbox moving off of Amazon but for the longest time you know Dropbox you know, Amazon kind of won the first round of this fight across productivity because everybody used AWS you know Dropbox right, right. paid the Amazon tax there's a great Stratechery article, which, you know, as, yeah, as our listeners know, we are both big fans of Ben Thompson. Um, but his article last week on the Amazon tax is just fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I before we move off this point, I want to revisit when I when I say that the low end disruption um, machine sort of failed. Obviously, people use Google Docs all over the place. I, we even talked about how it's my my go to. Um for the longest time, but it hasn't become a great business for Google. No, that that's the thing. Like the uh, there's been stagnation in Google uh, the adoption of Google Apps in the enterprise in a way that if they were really displacing the incumbent, disrupting the incumbent, the world would have moved to whatever their new set of features and and new um, sort of market they were creating the world would have needed those things. And that's not necessarily true from a monetization perspective. Yep. I mean, and instead, actually, I mean, to bring back to our last episode, what you've seen happen is this resurgence of Microsoft, of the original yeah. winner in this space, you know, with granted some expensive acquisitions that they've made, you know, as we discussed last week, half a billion or so in total. Um, but Office 365 and now you know, Outlook, uh, and, and Outlook mobile, um, through Accompli are, are winning huge share. Yep. Yep. There's a, I'm, I gotta find this real quick. 
There was an interesting um, point made. Here we go. Um, about a year and a half ago, uh, Google Apps had doubled the market share of Microsoft's cloud offering, according to a research report by BitGlass. The 16% versus 8%, that a whole bunch of people still using um, on-premise uh, productivity and email software. More recently, um, about six months ago, Office 365 had jumped ahead of Google Apps, 25% versus 23%. And it's a thing where Microsoft got their act together in, in Office 365 and building the, the um, cloud productivity tools. And like, to be honest, I, so I worked on um, what was then uh, Office Web or Word Web App before mm. they, they were called uh, uh, Office Online. It's actually my internship at, at Microsoft. And like, it, it was a joke compared to Google Docs. I mean, I was writing specs and looking at Google Docs for like, well, how did they do it as a reference and then figuring out, can we do it better? Side N- note. Nope. Like, not a, yeah, not a place, not a good place to be as a product team. No, no, I, we were totally like trying to fast follow, but built on much older infrastructure, and it was it was kind of a nightmare. And what's happened is is really like that native clients on all platforms at Microsoft have become excellent through building and buying, yep. and the 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 cloud applications have have you know held their own, and you can do real time collaboration now with with Microsoft's applications. And even if the user experience, which in my opinion of their cloud applications is still below Google's, they're at least able to t- tell that story to the enterprise and, and Google yep. hasn't won out. And what's really, what's really interesting here is that, um, I don't think anyone would argue that, you know, the cloud versions of Word and Excel and PowerPoint are, you know, greater beating, you know, a resurgent or beating Google Docs. But what right. is it doesn't matter. Yeah, like, it's the wrong battleground. It's the wrong battleground. You know, Microsoft is still capturing the majority of the value in productivity. Google is capturing almost zero right now mm-hmm. in terms of the dollars being spent by enterprises and individuals on productivity. And Amazon is just taking a tax on everybody else. Yep. God, this is such a good case study in incentives. I mean, I think like if I'm ever struggling to understand a business, taking a step back and saying, what is every party incentivized to do brings instant clarity. Microsoft is a productivity company, operating system productivity company, and, you know, uh, operating system broadly defined. That will Mm -hmm. become something much more cloud oriented. Um, Google is an advertising company, and it's not like this low end disruption was coming from the the uh, the company that represents the future of productivity it was coming from an advertising company looking for their next thing mm-hmm. so when push comes to shove microsoft needs to defend their castle and they weren't defending it against a productivity upstart they were defending it against an advertising company that was looking at it as sort of an afterthought so in my opinion the the atrophy of of um google docs in in fighting that war or in fighting whatever war they should be fighting where it's going is largely because they have problems to think about in the future of their advertising business, what it means as they transition from desktop to mobile. And the, I mean, we haven't gotten into Android yet at all. And I think we yep. kind of stay away from there, but like, future have, episode. Yeah. They, they have advertising problems that they need to address that are, that are more serious. Yeah, it's a great point. I mean, think about it this way. Like your, uh, Larry Page, Jeff Bezos and Steve Ballmer and then Satya Nadella. Like what, how much is productivity on your mind? Like what percentage of your mind share <laughs> yeah. does that occupy? Jeff Bezos, probably zero. Uh, and, and Larry Page, you know, I don't know, 10%, right? Like, and 
Bomber and then Nadella, like, you know, 90%. You <laughs> yeah. Know? Who's going to win? Right. Right. Or who, maybe not who's going to win, but who's going to, who's got, who's the got the their line. back against the wall and has the most at stake to make sure that they give it their best shot. It's true. We want to thank our longtime friend of the show, Vanta, the leading trust management platform. Vanta, of course, automates your security reviews and compliance efforts, so frameworks like SOC 2, ISO 27001, GDPR, and HIPAA compliance and monitoring. Vanta takes care of these otherwise incredibly time and resource draining efforts for your organization and makes them fast and simple. Yep, Vanta is the perfect example of the quote that we talk about all the time here on Acquired. Jeff Bezos, his idea that a company should only focus on what actually makes your beer taste better, i.e. spend your time and resources only on what's actually going to move the needle for your product and your customers and outsource everything else that doesn't. Every company needs compliance and trust with their vendors and customers. It plays a major role in enabling revenue because customers and partners demand it, but yet it adds zero flavor to your actual product. Vanta takes care of all of it for you. No more spreadsheets, no fragmented tools, no manual reviews to cobble together your security and compliance requirements. It is one single software pane of glass that connects to all of your services via APIs and eliminates countless hours of work for your organization. There are now AI capabilities to make this even more powerful, and they even integrate with over 300 external tools. Plus, they let customers build private integrations with their internal systems. And perhaps most importantly, your security reviews are now real-time instead of static, so you can monitor and share with your customers and partners to give them added confidence. So whether you're a startup or a large enterprise and your company is ready to automate compliance and streamline security reviews like Vanta's 7,000 customers around the globe and go back to making your beer taste better, head on over to vanta.com acquired and just tell them that Ben and David sent you. And thanks to friend of the show, Christina, Vanta's CEO, all acquired listeners get $1,000 of free credit. Vanta.com slash acquired. All right. Uh, what would have happened otherwise? Well, I mean, it's hard to say. Uh, this actually is a really interesting one. Um, had these companies, let's take Rightly, for instance, um, had that been an independent company launched publicly and let's say they built Google Docs, um, what would that look like? Yeah, it's interesting in thinking about the incentives. Like, then would we have had a true low end disruption event where, yeah. you know, you have a true new productivity company going after an old dinosaur? Or is, were they still fighting an unimportant battle? Yeah. Like, well, and let's look at, um, you know, let's look at Box and Dropbox here because these are the closest comps yeah. we have. Or would to, rightly have gone into storage, maybe. Yeah. That, yep. Is that interesting? Um, or, you know, I mean, storage um, that, that Box and Dropbox obviously did. Um, you know, today, uh, who knows what will happen in the future, but I think with both of those companies, um apple should buy dropbox <laughs> well there's a there's history there it's, well it's a different person making that decision now yes <laughs> <laughs> we're referring to uh steve jobs famously offered to buy dropbox for a billion dollars i believe something around that uh and then i don't know that it was ever first disclosed. he called it a feature not a not a company and then when he came back with his tail between his legs then drew houston told him that uh you know, politely declined. But um, again, who knows what the future holds? But sitting here, March 2016, do we think Box or Dropbox could ever be a company at the scale of Microsoft 
or Google or Amazon. Personally, I I think that's hard to see. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man. If 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 it does go that direction, you know, it's it's Box going the Microsoft route and Dropbox pioneering some new. Uh, well, they need they need consumers to pay, which is a really hard thing to do for a utility file storage thing like that. But but if a mythical rightly or upstartle uh, still existed, yeah, would that be more of a contender than a um, a storage focused company? Yeah, I mean, per, I mean, perhaps what happens is Dropbox buys Upstartle. And then you have a, a true, you know, the Microsoft equivalent of OneDrive and Word Online. Yep. And that is sort of the, yep. the productivity clearly, stack. Clearly Dropbox has, uh, you know, had these thoughts as well. I mean, they bought Mailbox and they bought several other companies. God, that is a company that's not good at acquisitions. <laughs> Future episode. <laughs> yeah. All of Dropbox's bodies buried. Uh, that's mean. Yeah. 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 All right. Um, I already did my tech theme. When you want to talk about Ben? Um, yeah, I'd, I'd written down that I wanted to to draw the parallel the parallel to classic low end disruption. So I think uh, I think we've beat that one pretty good. All right. Should we do conclusion? Yeah. Yeah. And then we've got one more section that we're adding on. Yes. We'll get to that in a minute. Yeah. Stay tuned. St- yeah. So. We gave YouTube. I gave YouTube a C, um, and that's that's become a money pit for Google. At least to um, you know, I think it's a relatively break-even business. But God, is that thing expensive to run? Yep. This not terribly expensive to run. Um, not terribly expensive uh, to buy. To buy. Um, probably expensive from a manpower perspective. Like it, it, it probably just takes a lot of uh, a lot of engineers to to keep this thing going and develop it, but. But given, I mean, Google does make money on. Um, yeah, so I think I think the business unit of of uh, Google Apps for Business is is uh, self sustaining. You know, I'm going to also give it a C, but more because I think it is a distraction for Google, mm. and less because I think it's it's not expensive in terms of dollars. I think it's expensive in terms of opportunity cost of attention. Yeah. Interesting. So you're making an argument, um, not this specific argument, but a, a sort of category argument that by acquiring, uh, these companies and taking a productivity focused strategy for several years, adopting that at, at Google, um, it was actually a major distraction from either their core strategy uh, within search or, or finding another sort of, you know, leg of the stool that would be a better fit with their core capabilities as a company versus trying to go down a path that um, they really weren't equipped to succeed in. Yeah. I mean, I think at the end of the day, Google was looking for a second huge business, much like for Microsoft, they had windows and then they had office and, there's some argument that it, it contributes to their existing business, but they were going after selling productivity tools and that just didn't become a huge business for them. I mean, it's a, it's a decent business. I think it's a self-sustaining business. It's, it's a profitable business, but it's 
not a Google scale business. Yep. It's and, not a huge business. Right. And, and I think for many years, that was where they were focusing energy. Um, when really, you know, there's, there's a, a big potential problem with, with their, their current business as things go more mobile. And now they're looking at all these other moonshot opportunities. And I think for a long time, they thought productivity could be a second huge business for them. Yeah. Hmm. So I was going to give this acquisition a B for many of the reasons you initially started talking about. Well, you know, it wasn't a huge success, but they didn't spend a lot of money and it does. It is. It's not losing a lot of money for them uh, or consuming a lot of capital like YouTube. Um, but I think I'm convinced by your argument, uh, because for technology companies where you operate in this, um, battlefield every day where there's this huge fog of war and it's very, you know, uncertainty is a way of life. Um, the sort of one resource that you have that's most important for startups and big companies alike, even Apple and Google and Microsoft and Amazon is your focus. Um, and this was a pretty major dilution of focus for Google for a long time. Obviously, they've been very, very successful in things like Search and Android uh, and many others. Um, but that resource is very precious. And, and for both of us working with startups, you know, this is what we coach founders all the time. You know, focus, focus, focus. This is the most important thing. It's all that you have as a startup. Um, I think I'm 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 convinced, Ben. I'm gonna go B minus. Still more generous than me. All right, so we have a new section, um, and this is a section where we talk about things that uh, a media or a, a movie or a TV show or something we're reading or a book or a new publication or something we're, we find fascinating, and uh, in. <laughs> In true lingo, we're calling this the carve out. So, uh, I will start with my carve out from this week. Um, and actually we'll call it since, since the last episode. Bill Simmons launched the ringer. And mm -hmm. for, for those of you who are not, not subscribed to, to the ringer, um, it's totally sports focused, but it's, it's really the, the, um, kind of crown jewel of the Bill Simmons media empire. I think after, after Grantland, after his, uh, for those of you who don't know, Bill, Bill Simmons partnered with ESPN to launch Grantland, which was incredible long form content about sports. And it was like the most incredibly well written prose about sports you could ever read that would take you on this journey and make comparisons to pop culture and an event that happened 50 years ago and truly relatable. And Bill Simmons is a, is a gift as a writer. And we saw him launch a podcast and finally the ringer. Which is the, um, the thing that has, uh, it's, it's starting as a, an email newsletter and a website, but, um, it's a very small staff and it's a kind of a new media publication that, um, it, that Bill Simmons has launched after the, um, tumultuous shutdown of, uh, of Grantland by, by ESPN as, as, you know, I, as probably made sense as a very expensive property. But I'm going to read a quote from the, the first email that went out, Bill, Bill introducing, the ringer and he does this great little section where he talks about all the names that it could have been and this this is just one of the reasons why um, he's a great writer to read but he's, he's talking about several of the names and the paragraph ends with upper echelon sounds like a hedge fund barnstorm 
Sounds like a horse that would be favored to win the Kentucky Derby. Side two, two insider. Grant World, too ludicrous. <laughs> F off ESPN, too easy. <laughs> <laughs> too easy. <laughs> And I think just rarely, rarely do you ever get a startup talking about like their ridiculous naming meeting. The first email includes the classic um, photograph of the of the whiteboard with all the potential names crossed oh, off. Nice. It's just like it, it, it's some of the most relatable writing, even if you're not a sports person. It's just incredibly entertaining in a ropes end. I love it. I love it. Um, my uh, well, I, sh- I should say too the the part of the inspiration for the carve out uh, was um, my wife Jenny introduced me to. Uh, two of Slate's podcasts, the Political Gab Fest and the Culture Gab Fest, uh, both of which are excellent, and um, and they both do uh, a segment like this. So shout out to Slate and and thank you to them. Um, so my carve out for the week is uh, is something that I think uh, will uh, it picks up on a lot of themes from our show going back to our very first episode. Uh, and I just finally finished, uh, crossed off my reading list, Creativity Inc., uh, which is the mm. Pixar book by Ed Catmull. It is fantastic. One of the best books I've read, um, certainly this year, uh, but in, in the past few years, uh, best nonfiction books. Um, and, and ordinarily I'm pretty, I'm pretty tough on sort of business books, um, and they can often be trite and repetitive. Um, this was none of those things. Uh, and I think listeners, if you enjoy our show, um, you will love this book. Uh, and, and the one thing I would say from it, there, there's so many good stories from, you know, Steve Jobs stories to all the Pixar history. Um, but, uh, and, and just general management lessons and startup lessons. Um, but, uh, my favorite part of it, uh, is talking about uh, the creative process uh, and and managing that creative process, which obviously Pixar is so good at. Um, and the 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 one of the points that Ed makes in 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 the book is that it is always a struggle. You know, even at Pixar, they've done this so many times, um, and there's this temptation for them, even within the company, to to make it you know easier, to make it rinse and repeat. To you know, they, why do they have to struggle every time? Um, but if you don't have that struggle, you know, you don't get something great. Um, and I think that is so applicable to startups. Like I see it with the companies that I work with, um, you know, every day they're good times and bad times, but even the companies where to the outside world, it looks like it's all, let me use my, my least favorite phrase of up and to the right, because it's always to the right, but it looks like it's all up <laughs> as it goes to the right. Um, you know, inside, like it's up and down every single day. Um, and there are periods of, of just huge existential challenges. And, and one of the, the book talks about like every Pixar film, uh, and every Disney film, uh, since, since the acquisition has just had, you know, if you don't have this crisis, you know, it's very hard to make something great. Amen to that. This is a great time to tell you about one of our very favorite companies, Crusoe. So, Crusoe, as listeners know by now, is a clean compute cloud provider specifically built for AI workloads. NVIDIA is one of their major partners, and literally Crusoe's data centers are nothing but racks and racks of A100s and H100s. And because Crusoe's cloud is purpose-built for AI and run on wasted, stranded, or clean energy, they can provide significantly better performance per dollar than traditional cloud providers. Yes, we talked about that on our ACQ2 episode with Crusoe CEO Chase Lockmiller. The other element that makes Crusoe special is the environmental angle. 
Crusoe, of course, locates their data centers at stranded energy sites. So think oil flares, wind farms that can't use all the energy they generate, etc., and uses that power that would otherwise be wasted to run your AI workloads instead. Yep. Obviously, it's a huge benefit for the environment and for customers on costs since Crusoe doesn't rely on the energy grid. Energy is the second largest cost of running AI after, of course, the price you pay NVIDIA for the chips. And these lower energy costs get passed on to customers. It's super cool that they can put their data centers out there in these remote locations where, quote-unquote, energy happens, as opposed to the other hyperscalers, such as AWS and Google and Azure, who need to build their data centers close to major traffic hubs where the internet happens because they are doing everything in their clouds. Yep. If you, your company, or your portfolio companies would like to use the lower-cost and more-performant infrastructure for your AI workloads... Go to crusocloud.com slash acquired, that's C-R-U-S-O-E cloud.com slash acquired, or click the link in the show notes. Listeners, we'll leave you here. Thanks for tuning in this week. Um, visit us on iTunes, uh, write a review if you like the show, tell your friends, and uh, see you next time. Who got the truth? Is it you, is it you, is it you? Who got the truth now? Huh.